Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From My Point of View. Judge still stuck at 60. Kind of figured that wasn't going to happen against the Red Sox, uh, to be completely honest. Pujols gets number 699 and 700 in LA against the Dodgers, a team that is credited by many uh, to be the rejuvenation of his career and what allowed him to really be productive this season and not just a guy who is, you know, washed up championship hunting on the bench. You know, he has produced for the Cardinals. He has been a contributor to this team this year. Uh, And of course, NFL week three in the books. We still have Monday night football against the, I was going to say against the Cowboys as if speaking from my, that's my fan perspective coming out. The Giants, Cowboys, Monday night football. Uh, We get to preview that a little bit, but not going to go into it too much because, again, the game will be over by the time this is out. So, let's get into baseball real quick. Judge, still chasing 61. Uh, He hit 60 last week in the ninth inning of a crazy comeback against the Pirates where he let off the inning with a solo home run. I think that made it 8-5. to And then the Yankees got three consecutive hits, loaded the bases, Stanton, Grand Slam. We all know how that ended. It was a great comeback. But that was the last home run he hit. There was a four-game set against the Red Sox that ended on Sunday night. Unfortunately, that game didn't get to play out to its fullest. Uh, I think after it was the bottom of the sixth, I believe. They went into a rain delay, and uh, they ended up calling the rest of the game. Yankees had won 2 to nothing. Judge was actually due up first in the bottom half of the 7th, but they didn't get that far. It started torrential downpouring in New York, um, and then it made its way out onto Long Island and and so forth. But they never, I don't think think it was ever even a question. Uh, But as far as that game, I do want to talk a little bit about this. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens... Like, they should be on the K-Rod cast every single time they have it. Like, I know it's late in the year now. They're probably, that was probably the last K-Rod cast that they're doing because I think there's only about, it's September 26th. So there's like, what, 10 days left to the season, a week and a half. Uh, So that's done, obviously. But for next year, should they choose to bring back that kind of programming, which I thought was great. You know, it wasn't every Sunday night, just kind of like how ESPN, they don't do the Manning cast every Monday night. Um, So it's not every Sunday night, which is nice. But it is, there are some games where it's like, you want to listen to that. And like, specifically when the Yankees are on Sunday night baseball, like I would rather listen to that because they have interesting guests. And also Michael K is the voice of the Yankees. So having him on there, is is kind of nice, like it's a film, it's a familiar voice. Uh, but they had Clemens and Bonds on for like a minute, and listening to Clemens, Bonds, and A Rod all talk about baseball, and just like Clemens talking about pitching and approaches, and, and Bonds doing the same with hitting, and A Rod, like Michael K barely did anything, which. I think he was smart to do like he asked some questions uh, that prompted the three of them to each give their piece. But a lot of the times, like 
A-Rod would, would talk about things and then Clemens or Bonds would chime in. Like they had a great rapport and they're all so knowledgeable, man. Like you could say whatever you want about the three of them. Like, oh, they all took steroids, blah, 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 whatever. They all three of them should be in the Hall of Fame. Every single one of them. And it shows how smart they were and how dedicated they were to the sport of baseball when you hear them talk about it. Like, there isn't much more any individual player can offer about, like, the analysis and breakdown of the game of baseball than those three guys right there. There isn't. They're all unbelievably talented, arguably, like, three of the best players of all time when you really just break it down into stats. Steroids be damned. Clemens has seven Cy Youngs. Bonds has seven MVPs. Like, A-Rod is... The weakest accolade-wise out of all of them. Uh, Bonds is the home... I mean, you can... Uh, A-Rod has over 3,000 hits. Almost 700 home runs. Seeing seeing Pujols get 700 really made me wish A-Rod stuck around for another year. And just like... Because if he stuck around for one more year. One more year with the Yankees. And just played half the games. Played 80, 81 games... And was just a DH. Didn't even play the field, right? He doesn't have to play the field. Just a DH for like 80-something games. He could have hit four home runs. Like, he he easily could have hit four home runs. Someone would like hang a pitch to him eventually. And he hit a home run. And he'd get the 700. Would hit sour fans' taste on A-Rod because... You know, he stuck around just to get like an accolade. Yeah, probably. So... In terms of retirement, like, I think he retired pretty gracefully. Uh, he had a semi-productive year. Like, it wasn't the worst last year a great player has ever had, you know? Uh, so, I, I respect him for hanging it up and not being like, oh, I need to stick around for 700. I respect him for doing that. But, uh, accolades-wise, like, he has over 3,000 hits, almost 700 home runs. He has uh, a World Series, something that Bonds doesn't have. Uh, two MVPs, but like Bonds is the most feared hitter in all of baseball history, period. Like you see what Judge is doing now and he's getting like intentionally walked. People are pitching around him. That's just been the last month for Aaron Judge. Bonds experienced what Aaron Judge is experiencing in September. And you look at uh, Judge's September stats. He has like the second highest OPS it's like one point, it's like one that over uh, 1500. It's one, like 1622 or whatever. And Bonds has, actually, that might have been Bonds. Judge might be a little bit lower. But Bonds had in, an, in April in like 2004, 2005, whatever it was, uh, where he had like almost an 1800 OPS. It, it was stupid, man. And he experienced what a Judge is experiencing now. His entire, like, later half of his career when he won four straight MVPs, that was every season from March to October. Like, it was insane. No one pitched to that dude. Uh, I saw it was... uh, Judge got... Judge has been intentionally walked... I can't remember if it was 14 times or, like, 11 times. But all year... All year. And 
Bonds got that in like a like a, a month or a half like a, a couple weeks stretch. They he got intentionally walked like fourteen times. No one was pitching to this dude. So I digress a little bit, but Clemens, Bonds, A Rod, and then with Michael K hosting like that, it is awesome. Like I can't. They've had Clemens on the K Rod cast. I think this might have been like his third time chiming in with them. And he's been like, must listen for any baseball fan every single time. And I believe this is the second time they also had Bonds on. I want to say Bonds was on another time, but I can't quite remember if he was, to be completely honest. But regardless, like him having being on like that was phenomenal television. Like he he's just so smart and really talked like really well like you look at Barry Bonds and he's one of those guys where his voice doesn't really match up with how you think he is because he's such a big guy and you know he just was such a huge power hitter and you'd think he'd have like this deep intimidating voice like he really didn't he has a very nice calm soothing slightly high-pitched voice um almost Tyson-esque except not nearly close to that you know especially because Tyson was so much angrier looking than Barry Bonds was but he was awesome Clemens was awesome A-Rod I I love that K-Rod cast I know a lot of people probably hate it especially if you're not a Yankees person like that's A-Rod and Michael K the voice of the Yankees just double down on hatred like you don't want to listen to that I understand I get it and I've been critical of Michael Kay's broadcasting in the past. I have, because sometimes it's just it's just weird. Like there's like a a blab about the a broadcast, you know. And though that usually happens during like a a random game in the middle of June or July against like the Royals or whatever, where the game's kind of boring, nothing's really happening, and there's there's not much going on, and it's the Royals, like they aren't good, so. Sometimes you'll get games like that where the broadcast isn't very exciting and people get on him for that, but it's okay. Uh, He's still the voice of the Yankees. I still would not want anyone else to be calling like historic moments like Mike than other than Michael K because he does them really, really well. Like A-Rod's 3000th hit, Jeter's 3000th hit, uh, other, you know, Jeter's final home game. These, these moments that were like so, oh my God, kind of moments. Would I, I would want no one else other than Michael K to be doing that. So I'm sure he's got something teed up for when Judge hits 61 and for when he hits 62. Because when he hits 60th, uh, the 60th home run to tie Ruth, his call was pretty electric. Three infielders on the left side for Judge, and here's the 3-1. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. Number 60. Slide over, babe. You've got some company. Like, that's that's a pretty good home run call. And <laughs> that last part, like, slide over, babe. That became a little bit, I saw it gain uh, some traction as a, as a, a meme that night where people were like... <laughs> <laughs> me when I try and crawl into bed at late at night after watching my team lose. <laughs> it's like slide over, babe. 
Uh, it was it was pretty funny, but I I like that home run call. It wasn't too bad, you know. Um, they play a three game set against Toronto. Uh, coming up here for uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I think at the end, actually no, they don't play Thursday, so they have, must have an off day. Let's see, is it a three game set? I just assumed it was a three game set, but it might be. No, it's uh. Oh yeah, wait, today's Monday that I'm recording, so that's why I skipped the day. So yeah, it's uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They're playing a three-game set at Toronto, which sucks. So the, the big thing here is that they had um, seven games at home uh, for the Yankees, and he only hit one home run, and it was against the Pirates. So that's why a little, some people are probably upset, obviously, because now you have um, a three-game set against Toronto where he could hit two home runs against Toronto. And then he breaks the record on the road in Canada, which kind of sucks because you want that moment to happen in Yankee Stadium. But hitting 61 would be great, right? Like he could hit 61. The best case scenario here is he hits, I'm, I'm being a little bit picky now, Obviously, I want him to have the record, so the longer it goes on, the more like constricting it gets, where it's like the pressure builds up, and it's like, wait a second, is he actually going to do it? Because uh, there's not that many games left. He has 10 games left to do this, to hit uh, three home runs, one to tie, or two home runs, one to tie, one to break. So he has three games in Toronto, and then they do go back to the stadium at the end of the month and into the first two days of October to play the Orioles. Uh, and then they end the season the third to the fifth. They have a doubleheader on the fourth. So four games in Texas. These are makeup games, I believe, or one of these is a makeup game at the very least uh, against the Rangers. So four games in Texas to end the season. Best case scenario, if I could have it anyway, he hits 61 in Toronto. That way, bare minimum, like he has tied Maris, like that number definitely stands out uh, in Yankee history and in baseball history. And people are like, well, Sosa and Bonds, it is, yeah, but like people haven't done it since the steroid era. So like no one's hit 60 since those guys were juicing, which is cool, right? It's cool that he already has 60 home runs. Very, very impressive, obviously. But you want him to have... The Yankee record. People like seeing history. So, hit 61 in Toronto. Come back for three games against the Orioles and hit 62. Call it a day. And then just, you know, tack it on. You could see there are there were times in the Red Sox series where they weren't pitching to him at all. And then some guys challenged him a little bit. And they were like, screw it. Like, you have to challenge him. We can't walk him. Let's, let's go after it. He did strike out a couple times. Um, and there were pitches that were hung where you could see he really takes a hack at it and he would like foul it off and he would get pissed at himself. So he's trying. And I, like he knows that he has to do it. Others are waiting. It's like a spectacle waiting for him to do it. Uh, it's very nerve wracking for a player to, to be on that cusp. And especially now the season's down to the to the end here, you have 10 games left to hit two home runs. Seems simple for someone like Aaron Judge, who has had 60 all year, but 
I kind of expected him not to hit it against the Red Sox because I, I figured most of the pitchers on that team would not want to give up that piece of history because if the roles were reversed, I would not want to give up that home. If, if, if someone on the Red Sox was going for this record, you know, going for 61 home runs, going for 62 home runs, the American League home run record, uh, I wouldn't want anyone on the Yankees to give that up. If I like as a fan, I I wouldn't I would say pitch around him, you know, don't 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 let him make history against the Yankees because there are rivals like things. History matters. Right. Uh, and it, certainly if I was a player. Eh, actually, now that I say it out loud, if I was a player, it'd be a little bit different. Um, if I wasn't like an ace pitcher, you know, let's just say like hypothetically, uh, I, if I was like a Max Scherzer or a Jacob deGrom or a Garrett Cole or like a Clayton Kershaw, if I was like a Hall of Fame level caliber pitcher, I don't know if I would give up, if I, if I would challenge them enough to give up that home run because there is like a pride factor there and like you want to get him out first of all Max Scherzer is not pitching around anyone like it's kind of unfair to use that as an example I'm just trying to say like caliber wise uh but if you're already a hall of fame caliber pitcher like who cares if you give up a historic home run to this guy because then it's like kind of cool you know makes it a little bit more interesting if you're a no-name pitcher and like you're hanging on by a, a thread right and and you're you're like a borderline you get called up and sent back down constantly if you're one of those guys like a fringe player a roster filler player i would be more inclined to give up the the home run is what i'm saying cuz then at least you could be like a trivia question you know who did aaron judge hit home run number 62 off of to break roger maris's yankee home run record that's a great bar trivia question. And you could be a part of that. You know, take my pitch. Take it in, with, into consideration. As for Judge's Triple Crown Hunt, that's still going on as well. He is tied. Technically, he is above Xander Bogarts by like 0.0001 percentage point. Like, Bogarts is batting 314, but I think he rounded up to 314, whereas Judge is batting 314, but they, it's either flat 314 or like slight, or you round down to the nearest number for him. Uh, so that's why I think technically he is above Xander Bogarts, but they're both batting 314. And the RBIs are fine. He has Jose Ramirez by 13 RBIs. Uh, he's actually tied with Pete Alonso. For the major league lead with 128 RBIs. And then he has Schwarber by 18 home runs. Kyle Schwarber has 42 home runs. Very impressive. Trout has 37, which I didn't realize how many home runs Trout had. Uh, But Judge, obviously, you know, he's got the home run thing locked up. So really, it's about average. Um, This four-game set against Boston was like a great opportunity to try and like at least separate Bogarts and Judge by a couple of batting points. Uh, weren't quite able to do that. They both started the series, I believe, hitting 317. 
So they all, they both went down three percentage points, but they're both still batting the same. Luis Arise, I guess, didn't have a... Let's see where he is. I, I assume he's right behind them. Arise is batting 313. So there you go. Uh, but yeah, he's still fighting for that triple crown as well. I feel like at this point he's got the MVP locked up, right? Like he's having such a historic year. The Even the Otani riders are kind of like, okay, fine. We admit it. Judge is going to win MVP. Fine. Okay. Whatever. We get it. So that is still something else to keep an eye on as well as number 60 and or 61 and 62. Other piece of history that happened, uh, Albert Pujols, number 700. He becomes just the fourth player ever to hit over 700 home runs. Bonds, 762. Aaron, 755. Babe Ruth, 714. And now Albert Pujols, 700. I mentioned A-Rod is there now in fifth with 696 home runs. Uh, they actually made a funny joke to Bonds. I mentioned how much he walked on the K-Rod cast. <laughs> A-Rod was like, hey, if they actually pitch to you instead of walking you so many times, how many do you think you'd be have 800 home runs? <laughs> and Bonds was like, yeah, absolutely. No question about it. <laughs> He's like, I'd have 850 home runs, you know? He <laughs> It was, I'm like, and you know what's crazy is that it's true. Like, if they didn't intentionally walk Bond so much, if they didn't pitch around Bond so much, especially that stretch where he was hitting 60, 65 home runs a year, 70 plus home runs a year, you know, in that like stretch where he won four straight MVPs, if they weren't pitching around him, his stats would be inflated, like astronomically. He put up video game numbers and they weren't pitching to him. Put it that way. It, it, it's inc- it's incredible. Like, it's simply nothing like it ever. He, he was a cheat code. I mean, just like real quick, I, Bonds has 2,934 hits. He has 2,558 walks. He's never struck out more. Uh, He's struck out over 100 times once in a season and it was his rookie year in 1986 he struck out 102 times the next closest he came was 93 times in 2001 and 92 times in 1998 didn't barely struck out like in 2004 (laughs) he walked 232 times and only struck out 41 times I, he had 362 <laughs> with 45 home runs and 101 RBIs. He had 370 in 2002, 198 walks, 47 strikeouts. That's when he hit 73 home runs, 137 RBIs. He had 73 home runs and only had 137 RBIs. Oh boy, <laughs> his stats are like outrageous. Anyway, Albert Pujols, I'm sorry. Albert Pujols, 700 home runs, fourth player ever. Phenomenal year for Albert Pujols. Uh, it, it's a great like last hurrah. I'm glad he got his milestones. 3,000 plus, 3, plus hits, 
700 home runs and counting. Who knows if he hits one or two more. Uh, it would be cool if he ended with a flat 700, but it's it's significant when and where he hit it. In LA, against the Dodgers, would have been cool to be in St. Louis. Yeah, obviously the fans would have went crazy, but the fans appreciate Albert Pujols there because he, after the Angels, he went to the Dodgers, um, and there he seemingly rejuvenated his career. Like he had like a little extra extra wind put under his sail, under his wings, to give him this last year with the Cardinals. For them to bring him in and be like, okay, let's go. One more, one more ride, you know? And he's produced, man. Like he's he hasn't been a a like washed washed up um bench rider like riding the pine like he has uh he's batting 264 with 21 home runs this year in 290 something bat like he's he's played or he has 292 at bats so 333 played appearances walks obviously played in 103 games um like that's not it's not he's contributed is what I'm saying like his average is fine for today's standards 264 uh 21 home runs 58 RBIs like he's been a productive player for the Cardinals and you can credit the Dodgers being in that environment being in that playoff race being doing that kind of stuff right like he rejuvenated himself like he he inspired himself to be that kind of player again because he went to LA he left the Cardinals when he was 32 years old 31 years old whatever it was he took the money he re- he really was like beloved in St. Louis he is a St. Louis Cardinal but he took the money and he went on to have decent numbers in LA like Especially some, there was like a three, four year stretch. He had good numbers. In 10 years for the Angels, he was an all-star one time. The For someone who was an all-star for like seven consecutive seasons with the Cardinals, arguably those, that, that seven, eight, nine year run he had with St. Louis from his early 20s to his uh, late 20s, early 30s there, Besides, in modern baseball, sans steroids from, let's see, let me get the exact years down. From 2003 to 2010, that seven-year run, or eight seasons technically, sorry. That may have been, besides Miguel Cabrera, from 2000, like, Eight to 2015 that may have been the most dominant single single dominant stretch from any player we've ever seen period like in in modern baseball you know and this isn't a guy who has been accused of doing steroids or anything like that like is just a, a purebred like feared hitter uh, obviously the video game stats bonds was putting up is second to none we know that but he was, for the better part of a decade, like the best player in baseball and the most feared player in baseball. And he was beloved by the fans. 
He is a Cardinal. Like, that is a guy that is synonymous with that organization just as much as Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina are, even though he left for 10 years. He's gone for a decade. And he comes back to the Cardinals for this year with Yadi and Adam Wainwright, and it feels like he never left. So it's so nice to see that, and, like, that's the beauty of baseball, really, right? How can you not be romantic about baseball? Because it's like not seeing your best friend for 10 years because they moved across the country. And then you meet them, you, you see them again, and you finally get together for like a long weekend or, or something like that. And you just have the best time together. You laugh and you reminisce, but you make new memories. And it's like you never missed a beat, right? All the conversations flow easily. You're not struggling to find common ground like it's just like it's it clicks and everything is still perfect that's what it felt like when Albert Pujols came back to the Cardinals it just felt right you know and it felt like something that should have never happened he should it's one of those things you're gonna look back on especially people my age who grew up watching Albert Pujols just be dominant right and obviously, if you're a baseball fan in that time period as well, it's just one of those things that feels like it should have never happened. Things just went wrong. Like, it, there's a there's a break in the timeline where we see what happens here and Pujols goes to L.A., but there's another alternate timeline where Pujols remained a cardinal and every, everyone was happy. <laughs> uh, so him going to L.A., it's just like... For a guy who was so good, like he hit the market and he was like, he's the best free agent in baseball at that point in time. For a guy who was that good, it was, it ended up just being the most forgettable 10 years that any baseball superstar has ever had. And it's because the Angels aren't good. They aren't a good organization. They aren't a well-run organization, which is why they're up for sale. And... They just didn't compete. Like, they just weren't a competitive team, even with Albert Pujols, who, again, he didn't end up being, when he got to L.A., that 10-year stretch, like, that's it wasn't the, it wasn't, the productivity that he gave out was not what the Angels, obviously, were paying him to do, even though he had good years. He really did. Like, he, he it's not like he went there and... He barely played because he was injured all the time. Like, he had one year in 2013 uh, where he only played 99 games. But other than that, like, he was completely healthy for his entire shtick uh, in L.A. He had the one year in 2013, he played 99 games. And then in 2018, he played 117 games. Uh, But other than that, like, 150 games plus for eight out of the nine years, um... 131 games in 2019, whatever. Shut up. (laughs) But, like, he wasn't... He didn't play poorly. You know? So, like, his first year, he hits 30 homers, 105 RBIs, hits 285. All right, that's great. Like, not an all-star. Then 2013, skip. 2014, plays 159 games, 28 home runs, 105 RBIs, 40 home runs, 31 home runs... 
Uh, and then the production starts to dip off. Now you're in, he's like 37 years old, 23 home runs, 101 RBIs, 19 home runs. So you just see, like, as you, as you look down, uh, the production, the, the power production just falls off dramatically. And that's, that's what happens with power hitters. Obviously you could still hit for average and stuff, but, uh, anyway, he hit 699 and 700 in Dodger stadium. It was a great location to do it. Uh, if it didn't have to, if it wasn't going to be in St. Louis, it's nice that it was in LA against the Dodgers, a team that when he joined, it gave him a little bit extra of a spark to keep playing ball, you know? So congratulations to Albert Pujols. He is a first ballot Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. Uh, I don't know if he gets 100%. I'd be shocked if he did, but he's going to get like 95, 96, 97% of the ballots going to vote for him to be in the Hall of Fame. Thirty-three Over 3,300 hits, 700 home runs. He almost has a 300 average, which sucks that he's not going to be able to get there. Um, 295 lifetime career average. And those 10 years in LA are really what did him in because he didn't hit over 300 one time in LA. And obviously... Uh, coming out from St. Louis, like he was hitting well over 300 every year. His rookie year, he hit 329, 314, 359, 331, 330, 331, 327, 357, 327, 312 in his last year. And then he hit 299 in his last year in St. Louis. Excuse me. 299 in his last year in St. Louis. Did not hit above 290 in any one year with L.A. 285 was the closest he came, and that was his first year. Sad. I wish he got 300 batting average. That would be sick. Like, you could argue he's, like, the best baseball player of all time then, right? Like, 3,300 hits, 700 home runs, 300 average. Like, that's crazy. Those are crazy numbers. Congratulations to Albert Pujols, number 700. Very cool to witness so much history in one year. It's always nice seeing that kind of stuff, right? Just to get to witness witness greatness, right? Okay, NFL Week 3. Let's get into it, starting with uh, Sunday Night Football, and then we'll go through uh, the games this past week, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about the Giants and Cowboys just to see what what to expect and see if I was right in hindsight. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, the Sunday Night game sucked. So if you're a gambling man like me, the unders have like been clean every Sunday night football game. And I think you can even trace that back to last year as well. Uh, the unders are hitting like real easy. The, uh, the over under for this game was, I got it on FanDuel for 45. I know usually it's like they have points. Sometimes they just make it flat, but 45 for the Niners and the Broncos and I mean, if you watch the Broncos all year for the first two weeks, they played the Seahawks and the Texans, two not very good teams, and they couldn't score points. Like, their offense has just looked so bad, and that continued into Sunday night. They win the game 11-10 to because Jimmy G pulls a Dan Orlovsky and steps out of the back of the end zone when they're backed up on like their own one-yard line. He drops back, takes one drop step too many, and steps out of bounds before throwing the ball. Now, even if he didn't step out of bounds 
and he threw that same exact ball. It was pick, I think it was Bradley Chubb was out there. He picked it off and ran it into the end zone, but that didn't count because it was a safety. So they actually kind of got lucky there. Uh, but it ended up Broncos winning 11-10. to Disgusting score. Disgusting game. And the Niners, it was weird because the Niners looked good. Like their first opening drive, they drive down the field. And I think it was the first drive. It, it was the first quarter. Like they drive down the field. They cap it off with an IU touchdown. Mike Tirico has a super sus call about uh, IU coming inside. <laughs> It was it was weird. It was so weird. It's like, hey, yo, what the fuck? What the hell, Mike Tirico? Um, but they had a good drive. Like they didn't look terrible, and then it just like nothing happening for the rest of the game. Um, Broncos looked terrible. Also, the Broncos are concerning. So the Niners, the Niners are weird because they've always had a high precedence for running the football and, and and playing good defense and that's kind of what they've always been with Jimmy G and sometimes they are prone to the the offense just stalling because of that. And that's what happened this game. They dropped to 1 and 2 on the year and the Broncos somehow improved to 2 and 1. They should be 3 and 0, but they're 2 and 1 against three or two not good teams obviously losing to the Seahawks, and then barely sniffing out a win against the, the Niners because the opposing quarterback made a mistake. Like, if Jimmy G doesn't step... I mean, again, if he doesn't step out of the back of the end zone, they get a defensive touchdown, so I can't, you can't really say if he doesn't step out of the back of the end zone, they win that game by a point because they probably would have lost by more, actually. Um, but the Broncos have looked horrible. Nathaniel Hackett... The big thing with him is that he went out and hired a guy to be the game manager, like clock usage, timeout usage, um, pace of play, like, hey, like, let's ramp it up a little bit, you know, and try and get in position, blah, 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 stuff like that. Game, a game management coach because of how poorly he did that in the first two weeks of the season. And people were kind of like, oh my God, that's embarrassing. I kind of respect him for doing it because he recognizes that he's shitty at that aspect of being a head coach, which is obviously it's a huge aspect of being a head coach, but uh, he has not looked good. Like They have one exceptionally good running back in Javante Williams and another good running back in Melvin Gordon, similar to like the Lions where they have DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams. Uh, and I don't know why they were the first team to come to my head, but we'll get to them. Uh, so he seems to be in a really a really weird spot, Hackett, as a head coach, where do you just run the ball down everyone's throat with Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon? Because last year they had a really good rushing attack, and this year they still have a really good rushing attack. So do you do that, or do you forcefully have Russell Wilson try and make plays because you just traded for him and then paid him all this money. Like, do you, are are you now, I'm curious to see if he feels forced to draw up these plays for Russell Wilson, to draw up these plays where, you know, he, he they're revolving around the stupid let Russ cook motto. Uh, I saw a tweet last night that said, let Russ cook or is... Russ cooked, <laughs> and it 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 
bears a very, very, very tough question. Is Russ cooked? Like, he might be. I, I, I know it's only three weeks into the season, but that offense has looked flat out inept. Like, they can't score the football, man. They're not good. And it's so strange. Like, the one really good drive they had, the one really good drive they had, Melvin Gordon got a lot of touches. Javante Williams started off, and then Melvin Gordon got a lot of touches, and it capped off with a Melvin Gordon touchdown. Like, that was by far, like, they drove down the entire length of the field, and they scored. Maybe not the entire length, but they had, like, a long drive, several plays, 70-plus yards. It capped it off with a Melvin Gordon touchdown. Best drive they had all game. Easily. So, I'm just like, where is his head at? That's where I want to really get inside Nathaniel Hackett's head and just be like, what are you thinking? You know, are you scared to be like a run the ball kind of team because you just got Russell Wilson? Are you scared to be a run the ball team because that's not sexy in today's NFL? You want your quarterback to throw the ball. You want them to be like the focal point. You need to have a passing attack. Like you have Cortland Sutton, you have Jerry Judy. It's not like you don't have good wide receivers. So why is this offense so bad? Why are they not scoring the football at the rate it feels like they should be scoring? Like I'm talking this this offense with the weapons that they have should be at scoring at least three touchdowns a game. Like at least. And I know some game some weeks are bad and some defenses play other teams really well. Like you, you can't always score that many points. Like I get it. But like that feels like the bar that is set for the Broncos. Like they should be having at least three touchdowns come from either Russell Wilson throwing the ball or them running the football because they're just it, it just feel that's just how it feels like this team should be playing and they could barely get the ball into the red zone. Like they're just not a good offensive team right now. They're not. It's 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 really 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 like I know you're two and one now. You're barely two and one. Barely. You lost to the Seahawks. The Texans played you really tough. And now the Niners played you really tough. And the Niners, I'll, I'll take it with a grain of salt because I think the Niners are generally a good team outside of their uh, quarterback situation. And I, I think Jimmy G's definitely way better than Trey Lance, but it's still obviously a rocky situation. And I wouldn't really say Jimmy G's the gunslinger type, you know? But wow, what a bad game. <laughs> what just a boring, bad, ugly football game. 11 to 10. 11 to 10. Like, gross, man. Really, really gross. Uh, but bet the under. Like, let's see. Hold on. Let's see real quick. Uh, I'll tell you right now. Next week. The fourth. Sunday night football. Ah, shit. Never mind. <laughs> Sunday night football next week's the Chief and Chiefs and Bucks. So, I doubt. Do they even have... Do they have a over-under? The over-under is 44 right now. Uh, Chiefs at the Bucks. I don't know. The Bucks looked really bad 
against the Packers. Like they also couldn't score the football until really late. They barely got that. It's not like either team was really good. That over that under smash too. Uh, I think that was only set at like thirty nine and a half maybe, because um, no one had any receivers. But next week, Mike Evans is back. Julio Jones may be back for the Bucks, so I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll we'll talk about some picks that I really like, and I'm going to get into some other stuff too at the end of the podcast. Just bear with bear with me for the week three roundup. Um, Thursday night Steelers Browns. Obviously, everyone was talking about that last second lateral play. It screwed over a lot of stuff. Claypool prop over under the spread. It was all a mess. Uh, we're not gonna, that game was so gross. So Sunday. Bears-Texans, a gross game. A lot of gross games. Uh, disgusting game. This, t- this, I mean, the Bears are somehow 2-1. Texans are 0-2-1. Uh, but this game looks like it was heading to a 20-20 to overtime. Uh, but Davis Mills threw a really, really bad interception to Roquan Smith, which led to uh, a touchdown or a, uh, a field goal because they were already in field goal range when that happened. And I think that was a minute left in the fourth quarter. He threw that horrible pick. Rokon Smith returned it a little bit. Uh, the Bears actually, after they got the ball, four plays where they got the ball with a minute and five left. Four plays, zero yards, but doesn't matter because they were in field goal range. So they kicked the field goal through to win 23-20. to Another ugly win by the Bears, but uh, they did win. Justin Fields, another game with less than 20 Passing attempts, 8 for 17, 106 yards, and 2 interceptions for Justin Fields. Oh, boy. Khalil Herbert was a beast, though. Uh, David Montgomery went down with an injury. Herbert took over. 20 carries, 157 yards, and 2 touchdowns for Khalil Herbert. And he did show flashes when Montgomery missed the the 3 or 4 weeks, I think it was, last year. Herbert came in, and he was very good. He was a good, solid replacement for David Montgomery. Um... Not sure what Montgomery's status is if he's going to miss several weeks. Titans, Raiders, both teams 0-2. Both teams not expected to be 0-2, but here they are. And they, I mean, just almost a blown. One of these teams felt like it was always going to blow the lead. You know, the Titans had a lead going into the fourth quarter, um, 24-16. Raiders come back, they score 9 points they outscore the titans nine nothing in the uh in the fourth quarter but it's not enough they got a field goal and then a touchdown to make it 24 to 22 two-point conversion to tie they don't get it titans hold on to win uh raiders fall to zero and three you guys need to stop being tricked by Derek carr and i don't know I'm not talking to anyone specifically, but I know there are people out there in the media and in the public eye and fans that are like, Derek Carr is a good quarterback. There are really people out there. Now, can he get hot and lead his team to wins? Yes. Is he incredibly streaky? Yes. Would I trust him to win me a football game if it came down to that? Hell no. I just don't. The Raiders, so far this year, they have been plagued with just being, it feels like, content. Like, they're never aggressive enough when they need to be aggressive. 
most specifically that game against the Cardinals, like you're blowing them out at halftime, blowing them out. And you just, all sense of urgency like leaves their body. And the Cardinals get back in it. They end up winning in overtime. This is the second straight game where Devontae Adams has done nothing. Five catches, 36 yards for Devontae Adams. I I don't know, but you have Mac Hollins who had eight catches for 158 yards and a touchdown. Now Adams also did have a touchdown, but it's like the off. I you think Josh? I don't know, man. Josh McDaniels just might not be cut out to be a head coach, and you think people would have learned that by his first stint in Denver, where it just it didn't work. He had a couple successful seasons, and then it just didn't work out. Uh, he might be just better equipped to be a coordinator. And then I think they came out before the game even happened and, and McDaniels was saying like they're not, or uh, Carr was saying, one of them was saying they're not on the same page as the other. It, it is just, it feels like that entire organization is just a mess. Just a complete mess. Now, they are an organization to keep my eye on. Are they going to go after Lamar Jackson? This offseason. He'd be pretty good. He he looked pretty good in that Raiders black, baby. You know? He looks good in a Ravens uniform, but like Rock and Vegas colors? Oh yeah. The dark visor? <laughs> he would look sick there, but Vegas just brings problems, man. He's better off staying at Baltimore. At least that's like a really well run organization. Vegas is just a mess. Vegas is where you go to die. Like that that organization is just it, it breeds mediocrity and just like incompetence across the board. They make bad coaching hires. Uh the play on the field is just wildly inconsistent. And I'm pretty much done with the Raiders. I know they're 0-3. It's not technically impossible for them to dig themselves out of this trench, but like it is. Because you play in the AFC West, right? If this was the AFC South, you'd be fine. Like the Titans are now one and two. But even if they did lose this game, the Titans would still be alright at 0-3 because they play in the AFC South, which really is I mean, that's that's probably the worst division in football, right? Um, the AFC, uh, the NFC South isn't actually, yeah, the NFC South is definitely the worst, <laughs> uh, but the AFC South is not very good and they are just not capitalizing on their, on their talent, the Raiders, they're not. So I, I, I don't know, I don't know who to, bl- I don't know if, if I should blame Derek Carr more or Josh McDaniels, but either way they stink. Titans are 1-2. and two. They finally got Derrick Henry going. So that was encouraging to see. He had 20 carries, 85 yards, and a touchdown. And also f- had some, I think he had a four or five catches too, which was very uncharacteristic. He had five catches for 58 yards, Derrick Henry. So he was involved in the passing game too, which is not usually in the game plan. But I guess Mike Vrabel looked at his team and said, hey, we're 0-2. Maybe we should get the ball into the hands of our best player. 25 touches should do it. Smart. You're a smart guy, Mike Vrabel. Okay, don't let anyone tell you you're not. Um, yeah, not 
not good start for the Raiders. Chiefs Colts, this one was such a trap, but I took it anyway. It was Chiefs minus five and a half. And I'm like, this is this is the I should have just stayed away from this game, but I couldn't help myself. I really couldn't help myself. And I think maybe it's because I have Mahomes and Kelsey on my fantasy team as well. I'm like, ah, oh, they're gonna beat the brakes off the Colts at Indianapolis. The Colts are gonna start 0-3. It's gonna be hilarious. Like, such a trap game. I knew it and I still bet on it. Uh, Colts win outright 20-17, to and the Chiefs just didn't look there, man. Like, they had it. It was the, the big thing coming out of this game. Yes, the Colts get a win, um, and yes, they did stop Patrick Mahomes. First of all, when the Colts scored that touchdown, they left like 30 seconds left on the clock, and Chiefs had all three timeouts. I was like, too much time for Patrick Mahomes. And then they get around to midfield. Uh, Chiefs made a good pass deflection play, and it was a tip drill. They come with the interception to steal the, to seal the win. So good for the Colts. They beat the Chiefs. Um, obviously a tough opponent to get for your first win, so it's significant. But they're one and two. They're still in it. Jags lead the division right now. But for the Chiefs, the most interesting part that came out of this game was in ha- at halftime, going into halftime. Uh, the Chiefs run a play. They're on their uh, like the. They're near. They're approaching midfield, but they're still on their side of the field, and they run a play to McKinnon, I think it is, and they had a timeout, and they just let the clock run down, and it, the camera cuts to Bienemy, and Bienemy's on the sideline. He's just like you could read his lips very clearly. He's like, "We're good, we're good," and he's putting his hands up, like, "Calm down." He's like, "We're good, we're good, we're good," and you can't really read Mahomes' lips when he's talking to Bienemy. And Andy Reid has to come and, like, just, you know, tell Mahomes to cool off and bring him to the locker room because it's halftime. But Mahomes obviously seems pissed. And he came out and said, he's like, I always want to try and score. I always want to try and be aggressive. And clearly, Biannimi wasn't having it, which also flat out super weird for the Chiefs to not be aggressive in that situation. They almost always are. Uh, And then also you had, like, a weird fake field goal attempt that didn't work out for them either. And then a missed field goal, a very uncharacteristic game for the Chiefs. And it played right into minus five and a half, of course, or or I should say Indy plus five and a half. But it was just very weird, very uncharacteristic game for Mahomes and the Chiefs. A game that you'd think they'd light it up. They didn't. The enemy, obviously very weird that he's like not being aggressive, which I get it. And like they did miss Tyreek Hill in those situations because Tyreek Hill can just take the top off of any defense and that leaves like Kelsey and a lot of other receivers to be open underneath. And that's what they missed at the end of the game as well, um, even though they got pretty close. But yeah, very, very weird game for the Chiefs. They drop uh, they drop the game, and Colts get their first win. They're 1-2. Chiefs are 2-1. Bills-Dolphins, game of the week, easily. Uh, unbelievable. Like, so much like passion instilled in this game you knew that these two teams like coming into it you knew that they both knew like this is the this is the team we're going against like this is who we're battling for the division and possibly the AFC altogether just the AFC championship there's a good chance they meet in that game uh and it was just very high tension from start to finish shockingly Josh Allen and the Bills lose. They go to 2-1. Miami improves to 3-0. Uh, and obviously there was like, 
the butt punt, which a lot of people were trying to make a thing, and it, like the Mark Sanchez thing, and it's not, okay? It's not like that at all. Um, they were backed up, like, basically inside the one-yard line, and they had to punt the ball. And this came after they stopped the Bills from scoring. Uh, so they had to punt the ball, and the Bills got pressure on the punt. Their linemen's were pushed back. And the punter can't really do anything. He can't, like, he, can, he can't move back there. He's pinned. Otherwise, it's going to be a safety. So he basically just has to kick it right as he catches it. And it went off one of his linemen and went out of bounds for a safety. So uh, that ended up making it, I think that's what made it 21 to 19. Uh, Bills ended up getting the ball back, trying to drive down the field. Uh, they couldn't do it. Tried to snap it to try to. I guess they would try a, a incredibly long field goal with Tyler Bass, but didn't end up working out. Josh Allen was heated. Like this game got really heated. Allen was very, very, very pissed. Uh, and then there's a video of Ken Dorsey, the Bills' offensive coordinator, up in his booth, slamming his headset and like his clipboard, whatever, just slamming it into the table. He was. So pissed that they lost this game. Uh, Josh Allen was mad. Very, like, emotional game, even though it's only week three. Like, it was crazy. Dolphins take uh, sole possession of the AFC East, and the Bills go to 2-1. and one. Like, I'm very much looking forward to this game. Um, I think th- this game was in Miami, so I'm very looking forward to how the game goes in Buffalo. I'm sure it'll be just as epic. Uh, the Bills were missing... Poyer and Hyde this game. Uh, Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde, they're two all-pro safeties. So that definitely makes a difference. Uh, One of the more concerning things to come out of this game is Tua. So during the game, Tua got shoved by Matt Milano. And it was called for a roughing the passer, but it's not the roughing the passer you usually think of when it's like that. Like, he didn't... It wasn't helmet to helmet. He didn't, uh, you know body slam him into the ground. He he really just ran towards him. And as he threw the ball, he extended his arms and shoved Tua to the ground. But I think Tua was just ill-prepared to be shoved. And when he fell backwards, his head smacked on the turf. You ever see the when that happens to you? Like you the head smacks on the turf and it ricochets upward. It's not a pretty thing. Tua goes to get back up, and he's wobbling, man. Like, he looks like if you just breathe on him, he's going to fall over. So they immediately, like, grab him. They stop play. Like, they get the medical team out, and they bring him to the locker room. Uh, and then Tua ends up coming back into the game and continues to play and, until the end of the game, and then the game's over. But immediately, like, after the game ends, like an hour after the game ends, uh I get this the alerts from ESPN and it's like the NFLPA is launching an investigation into the concussion protocols that were taking taken with Tua because generally you smack your head back on the turf like that and you get up and you're wobbling like your legs are not underneath you and it looks like you probably can't see straight nine times out of ten you shouldn't be going back into that game like you probably have a concussion I I've never seen. I'm not sure, like, has there ever been an instance where a guy looks like that after being hit and then they're not concussed at all? So, uh, per the 2020 CBA now, 
players or the NFLPA are allowed to launch an investigation into teams like unprompted by the NFL uh, or whatever to launch investigations into teams to uh, see things about like player safety. So it wasn't necessarily when I first saw the updates, I thought like, oh, Tua is asking them to do that for the Dolphins. Uh, But it's not. It's the NFLPA flat out saw how Tua looked wobbling like his legs not his legs are total jelly after being you know hitting his head on the ground they saw that and then he came back into the game so they're like okay well it definitely didn't look like he should have returned to that game so we're gonna launch an investigation and make sure the Dolphins did a proper safety concussion protocol on Tua before allowing him to go back into the game because you know Concussion protocol is weird, man. Like, you can go out after taking a huge hit to the head and then go back in and people are like, I don't know, like, should he really? It's It gets weird. You know, football is a weird sport. And I'm sure Tua, after being, like, sitting down for a little bit and, and being checked out by doctors, I'm sure he gave the Dolphins a hard time. Like, he was probably begging them to get put back in, put me back in, put me back in, put me back in, because he was playing really well. So I, I imagine he was pushing back a little bit um and then they were kind of like all right like he's cleared go let him play but um that's gonna I'm, I'm interested to see how the results pan out for that investigation obviously and I hope too was fine like I know he came back into the game and everything but uh ideally there's no like long lasting uh effects or whatever or they you know he's able to practice all that kind of stuff Lions Vikings. Uh, the Lions are three and zero against the spread so far this year. They lose twenty eight to twenty four on a last second Kirk Cousins touchdown. Another like the Lions had a lot of this last year, where they would have the lead and then completely. I'm pretty sure one of the games was against the Vikings when they ended up they had the lead and then they let Kirk Cousins drive down the field and get a, and the Vikings won on a game winning field goal. So they let the, they have the lead pretty much the entire game. Uh, the Lions are, are are winning this game. They go up. Uh, they, they actually uh, it's tied at halftime, 14-14. They outscore the Vikings ten nothing in the third. So they're up twenty four to fourteen, and the Vikings end up scoring fourteen points in the fourth quarter to win it, and that includes a game winning drive um, for Minnesota with less than a minute left. They scored that touchdown. So that's heartbreaking, obviously. I'm big in on the Lions this year. Um, DeAndre Swift left the game with a, I think it was a shoulder injury. And it was a shoulder injury. And even Dan Campbell already came out and said um, DeAndre Swift could possibly benefit from taking the next two weeks off to help his shoulder heal. So Swift out. Jamal Williams is a very good running back. Uh, I've been saying I think he could be like the lead back for a team in the NFL. I think he's he's that good. Like he runs hard, he can catch the ball, uh, he's explosive. He could be a lead running back for someone. He really could, but he's not. He's second to DeAndre Swift, which is fine. They have like a good work share together. Uh, but he's going to be getting the workload now probably. Even if DeAndre Swift doesn't miss time, He's going to have a lower snap count, and Jamal Williams is going to get more of the work to help Swift heal. Um, But even so, Williams had 20 carries, 87 yards, and two touchdowns against the Vikings. 
Um, Justin Jefferson, Jeff Okuda did a great job on Justin Jefferson. He only had, I think, a couple catches. Um, three catches for 14 yards for Justin Jefferson against the Lions. So they were playing really well up until that last drive. And that's what had, like, that is why it feels like the Lions will always be the Lions. Even though they are 3 0 against the spread. So salute to you, Dan Campbell. You know, good teams cover. Um, but that's a tough loss. Like, I'm rooting for the Lions this year. I'm all in on the Lions. I want them to be successful. I want them to win football games. Uh, so losing like that last-minute touchdown, that sucks. Ravens-Patriots, this one was kind of scary for a while, but the Ravens ended up pulling away in the third quarter. They outscored the Patriots 17-7 to in the third, ended up winning 37-26. to uh, The big, big news in here, Lamar Jackson, by the way, four touchdowns, uh, passing the football, one rushing the football. So he had a day, 218 yards passing, 107 rushing yards. Obviously a stud. Uh, Mac Jones, three interceptions, not great on his end. And he also leaves the game with what is, quote, a very high ankle sprain. Uh, he could barely put any weight on it as he left the field. Kind of felt like it probably should have been broken, but apparently it's not. So uh, I doubt he plays next week against the, who did they, not the Steelers. Who do they play next week? Um, the Packers. Oh, he's definitely not playing against the Packers. That defense is good. They're not, he's not playing against the Packers. He probably won't even play against the Lions. He might come back. I think he'll miss a couple weeks. Definitely missing next week, though. I, I'd be There's no way he plays. If you saw the video, like, he's in obviously a lot of pain and a lot of discomfort, not putting any weight on. He's taking, like, two guys to carry him to the locker room. Uh, tough look for Mac Jones. But hopefully he gets better. Uh, I'm going to try and wrap this up a little bit quicker because there are things that I do want to talk about at the end of the podcast real quick. Um, just involving the podcast and stuff. Uh, Bengals, Jets, Bengals get the first win. They're one and two. Jets are also one and two. 27 to 12 Bengals win in New York. Joe Flacco finally catching up to him. I mean, 28 of 52, 52 pass attempts, 285 yards and two touchdowns. Not much doing running the football either. Listen, if they're passing the ball this much, this much with Joe Flacco, I have high hopes that they try and maintain their same offense but with Zach Wilson, who's a little bit better, I'd imagine, throwing the football than 30-something-year-old Joe Flacco. Um, but the Bengals, Joe Burrow, 23-36, 275 yards, three touchdowns. Tyler Boyd had a great game, four catches, 105 yards, and a touchdown. Quinnen Williams was seen erupting at the D-line coach for the Jets on the sideline. He had to be held back. Not sure what that uh, spat was about, but it didn't look great. So... Jets, they got to bounce back. Who they play next week? Oh, they play the Steelers, don't they? Yes, they play the Steelers. And the Bengals go on to play um, the Dolphins on Thursday night. That's a good Thursday night matchup. Dolphins, Bengals. Bengals still trying to right the ship a little bit after the 0-2 starts. So they're 1-2 against the undefeated Miami Dolphins. Now, that brings back my Tua point from before. Um, with the concussion things and stuff, it's a short week. Like, is he going to be able to play on Thursday night? Are there going to be some type of consequences if there is fault on the Dolphins with the concussion protocol? Like, that is something to keep an eye out because they have a short week to turn around and play on Thursday night at Cincinnati. Eagles, Commanders, the Carson Wentz revenge game falls flat. Uh, Eagles dominated from start to finish. And 
it was kind of a one-quarter game. The Eagles put up 24 points. All 24 of their points came in the second quarter. Huge day for Devontae Smith, who's been very, very quiet over the first couple games of the season. Eight catches for 169 yards and a touchdown for Devontae Smith. Uh, Nothing doing really for the Commanders, although Terry McLaurin ended up having a nice day. Six catches for 102 yards. Yeah, no, I mean, nothing doing uh, for the Commanders offensively. The Eagles dominated. They improve to 3-0. and uh, Currently, as it stands, as I'm recording, the only undefeated teams in the league, Dolphins, 3-0, and Eagles, 3-0, and Giants, 2-0. and Ideally, they beat the Cowboys on Monday night, and they improved to 3-0 and and joined that club. Uh, Panthers, Saints, Panthers get their first win of the year. The Saints were the last team in the 1 o'clock windows to score a touchdown. Uh, that came in the fourth quarter. They put up their 14 points all in the fourth quarter. Too little, too late for them. Uh, they end up losing 22-14. to 14. Chris Olave is here, though. Like, Drake London and Chris Olave, those might be the guys duking it out for Offensive Rookie of the Year. Chris Olave has had, uh, the past couple weeks, has been very good. And not only that, it seems like Jameis trusts him. Last week, 13 targets. He had five catches for 80 yards. This week, 13 targets. Again, nine catches for 147 yards. And, you know, he didn't find the back of the end zone, but Jameis is looking for him. Jameis is throwing the ball his way. And it seems like they have a nice connection established. I think Drake London is the uh, is the front runner, though, because he has he leads all rookies, I think, in catches and yards and touchdowns for r- rookie receivers. Speaking of, Falcons get their first win of the year as well. They beat the Seahawks in Seattle 27-23. to I think I said this last week that uh, it felt like the Falcons offense didn't really have trouble moving the ball. Um, and they were going to win this game easily, but then they fumbled on a read option play because it wasn't Cordero Patterson. It was their backup. Um, he grabbed the ball a little too tight on the read option and ripped it out of Mariota's hands when he tried to keep it and pull it back. So the ball was on the floor. Seahawks got it, and it made the game a lot more uh, intense, but it should not have been that close. Seahawks offense couldn't... And, you know, Once Geno had to start throwing the ball downfield and, and, and pick up the pace of play out and play outside of himself, Falcons ended up getting an interception, and the game was over then. But Falcons get their first win. They got a good offense, man. They got weapons. Cordero Patterson had a great day. Um, If it could pull this up and I could see it, I could tell you how much he had. 141 yards on the ground. A career high on 17 carries. Kyle Pitts finally got involved in the passing game. Five catches, 87 yards. And Drake London, three catches, 54 yards, and a touchdown. So they got got weapons offensively. And then Mariota, Mariota, of course, can still run the ball, but more prone to passing now. Jaguars, Chargers, Justin Herbert shouldn't be playing this game, man. Uh, He was banged up, and he made a couple really nice throws, but you could tell he just wasn't 100% healthy. This offense was not clicking. He shouldn't have been playing. He got hit a couple times, and I was like, get my boy out of the game. Get the kid out of there. Like, there's no no reason why you should be subjecting him to this kind of game. Um, But the Jaguars just beat the brakes off him. They really did. Trevor Lawrence looked great, so my Trevor Lawrence isn't really that good. Hot take increasingly gets hotter as he does better. Um, Not a great look, but 
262 yards and three touchdowns for Trevor Lawrence. Uh, and Herbie still almost threw for 300 yards with, you know, the cartilage issue. So I, I just, 38 to 10, Jaguars won. 38 to 10. Chargers defense couldn't do anything and the offense couldn't do anything. So shout out to the Jags. They're 2-1. and one. They lead the AFC South. Good for them. Uh, looks like that Trevor Lawrence pick is probably finally picking up. James Robinson and Travis Etienne are a great combo in that backfield as well. Uh, and Christian Kirk. Having a really good year so far. Maybe he was worth the money. <laughs> um, Rams, Cardinals, Sean McVay continues to dominate Cliff Kingsbury in head-to-head matchups. I think their last, like, dating back to, like, 2017. So however many matchups uh, that is. Uh, I think 12 of their last 13 matchups or 11 of their last 12 matchups, something like that, the Rams have won. Um, and two of those, they've shut them out. Now, that was back in like the Jared Goff era, I'm pretty sure. So a little bit different times. But basically, since both of these dudes became head coaches, uh, Kling- Kingsbury has one win and McVay just washes him pretty much every other time. So uh, that happened... This time, like, the Cardinals had a chance late in the game. A credit to the Cardinals' defense. They kept them in it. They forced the Rams to kick a couple field goals when they got into the red zone. Like, it was only... It was 13-6 to at the half. Like, very winnable game, but it was one of those games where you look at the scoreboard and you're like, oh, we're within reach. But then you look at what's happening on the field and you're like, oh, okay, the Rams are just dominating. Like, Kyler Murray and the offense... That offense stinks. It stinks. Like, they, they're not... What happened against the Raiders was an anomaly because those are the Raiders. Like, that's what they do. You're not going to be able to do it this week against the Rams, and that's exactly what happened. They couldn't. They had a really, 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 really slow start offensively, and they just could never pick it back up because the Rams' defense is actually good. Jalen Ramsey was active, by the way. He was all over the place. Uh, Rams go to 2-1. and one. Cardinals go to 1-2. and two. Bucks, Packers... Neither team has good receivers. I mean, the the Packers, like, they flat out just don't have that many good receivers. Walk, uh, Christian Watson was out. So, uh, Romeo Dobbs got a lot of targets. He even scored a touchdown. Randall Cobb got some play. Alan Lazard was back, so that helps them uh, a little bit. But 14-12 to was the final score of this game. With the help of some penalties and the fact that the Packers were collapsing... Tom Brady was able to go down the field and score a touchdown as time was less than 20 seconds left. Uh, And then they had to get a two-point conversion. Didn't work. So uh, Packers escape with a 14-12 victory. But neither team can really do much. Uh, The Bucs were without all three of their top receivers. Evans was suspended the one game for his shove uh, of Lattimore in Week 2. Julio Jones, I think, had a knee issue. Um, he's missed two games, I believe, as well. He was he was out last week and this week. Chris Godwin, same thing from week one. He was injured uh, out last week and this week. So all three of their top receivers were done. They had they had to sign Cole Beasley. So they had like Scotty Mill, Scotty Miller, Cole Beasley, and Russell Gage were like the three top receivers running routes for Tom Brady. Um, Leonard Fournette. Like, when you when you know those are the receivers, you're going to try and stop Leonard Fournette. He only had 12 carries for 35 yards. 
Uh, but he, I was, you know, I respect Leonard Fournette because he goes on Twitter and he's like, don't worry, my fantasy owners, touchdowns coming soon. Instead of just ignoring it or flat out saying like, I don't care about your fantasy football team. Like, that's lame, man. Like, we know you probably don't care that much, but like, try and have some fun with it. Like, Fournette saying that, that's having fun with it. Being like, yo, fingers keep, have trust in me, fantasy owners. I'm going to be scoring touchdowns soon. Don't worry. Like, that's cool. That's funny to hear, you know? Be lighthearted about it. Don't be like, I don't care when you have a bad day. Just Don't be just like, I don't care about your fantasy football team. Blah, blah, blah. Like, that's lame. All right? Uh, but that's the wrap-up for week three. Uh, I think the Giants will win Monday Night Football. Uh, I just think the defense has been playing well enough, and the Cowboys are just too banged up um, without Dak. I know they... Michael Parsons is still like him, you know, he scares the shit out of me. He'll probably sack Daniel Jones a couple times. As long as the Giants cannot turn the ball, the ball over, like if they if they manage to have zero turnovers this game, we're all right. Like we'll win. Obviously Diggs is a big playmaker. Michael Parsons is a big playmaker, so maybe don't uh maybe double Michael Parsons and don't throw the ball to, to Trayvon Diggs. <laughs> Uh, go Giants. As for the podcast, so I'm going to be starting, probably going to start doing more and more stuff on TikTok. So you can go follow me on TikTok uh, if you aren't already. It's uh, the same name as, uh, well, I shouldn't say the exact same name, but it's at From My Point of View Pod on TikTok. Um, I'll probably be like posting both. On TikTok and Twitter, like the clips that I do, uh, we're gonna get start getting way more into sports gambling, um, and just responding to a lot of videos and and hot takes and stuff like that. So go follow me on there. Go follow me on Twitter at underscore John Grimaldi. All that good stuff. Um, but that'll do it for this episode. From my point of view, thank you all for listening. I appreciate you as always. Have a good weekend, and I'll talk to you all next Tuesday.